We're going to read uh, again as a cross-reference from Ephesians and chapter 6. And I invite you to uh, turn with me there, if you would. Um, Ephesians 6 and verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, the words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. And then, having read that as something of a cross-reference, we come to our text for this morning, which is verses 8 and 9 of 1 Peter 5. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And we'll keep verses 10 and 11 for tomorrow. Just a brief prayer. Father, as we bow before your word, our great concern is not simply that we would have more information about it, but that we might have a divine encounter with you, the living God, uh, by the enabling of the Holy Spirit through the truth of your word. So to this end, we seek you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, those of you who have been with us for the two mornings, uh, we'll be able to understand that we could summarize the uh, instruction that we've received so far, don't worry, uh, be humble, or be humble, don't worry. I'm tempted to tell you that I was really proud of uh, how uh, my first talk went and really worried about this one this morning, <laughs> uh, just, <clears throat> just proving how dreadfully much in need I am of the instruction that we bring. It's a reminder, isn't it, that we preach, we preach to ourselves uh, we preach always to ourselves. So, um, come on now, says Peter, make sure that you're cultivating this grace of humility, that you are casting your anxiety on the Lord. And now he gives them instruction as to how they're able to conquer their enemy. So if talk one was humility and talk two is anxiety, then we can probably squeeze this one under the heading of adversity. Adversity. Now, when we look at these two verses, there's a tremendous amount in them, and we'll try and tackle them along these lines. First of all, identifying uh, our enemy, and then uh, acknowledging 
the activity to which we're called, and then noting, as, as we come to the end, uh, the solidarity that is expressed when he um, mentions the fact that the experience that those to whom he writes are uh, enduring is not something unique to them, but is something that is shared with all of their brothers and sisters through, throughout the world. So first of all, then, uh, we identify our enemy. Uh, the fact that uh, they had an enemy should be a great encouragement to them. And the fact that you have an enemy is, should be of great encouragement too. Because the same grace that reconciles us to God antagonizes us to the evil one. And one of the ways in which we realize that we have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light is that he who reigns over the kingdom of darkness now is hot on our heels. It's not very trendy to talk about the devil, even as you move around in circles uh, not dissimilar to this, you will find those who are tempted to challenge even the very notion of a personal devil. And uh, it, to do so, of course, uh, makes tremendous uh, demands upon you in terms of the rest of your understanding of the Bible. You're going to have to somehow or another deal with Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. You're going to have to deal with the opening of Job's gospel. You're just going to have to deal with the whole Bible. And um, somebody, somebody um, uh, put a little poem together that I remember this morning when I, when I wakened. It's not, it's not, uh, this is not Robert Frost by any stretch of the imagination, uh, but it does, it does just make this point. It's, it's a little poem called Who Does the Mischief? Who Does the Mischief? Um, and it goes like this. It's sort of tongue-in-cheek. Men don't believe in a devil now as their fathers used to do. They've forced the door of the broadest creed to let the rascal through. There isn't a print of his cloven, cloven hoof or a fiery dart from his bow to be found in earth or air today, for uh, the world has voted it so. But who is mixing the fatal draft that praises heart and brain, and loads the earth of each passing year with 10,000 slain? Who blights the bloom of the land today with the fiery breath of hell? If the devil isn't and never was, won't somebody rise and tell? Who dogs the steps of the toiling saint and digs the pits for his feet? Who sows the tares in the field of time wherever God sows wheat? The devil is voted not to be, and of course the thing is true. But who is doing the kind of work the devil alone should do. We are told he does not go about as a roaring lion now, but who shall be held responsible for the everlasting row to be heard in home, in church, and state to the earth's remotest bound, if the devil, by a unanimous vote, is nowhere to be found? Won't somebody step to the front forthwith and make his bow and show how the frauds and the crimes of the day spring up? For surely we want to know. The devil was fairly voted out, and, of course, the devil is gone. But simple people would like to know, who carries his business on? And now, as, as, you, as we read there from Ephesians 6, I think some of you, your minds would have gone to Daniel. I hope so, those of you who are Old Testament scholars at least. And the way in which uh, Daniel there uh, is assuring the people in the exile of the fact that the God of heaven reigns supreme over all of the principalities and the powers and the forces that are the unseen forces and yet real forces in the universe, the great forces of darkness which preside over so much of what goes on. And so uh, when we come to this passage, we take it uh, just as it says. 
uh, we, we are to be sober-minded and watchful because we have an adversary, and our adversary is the devil. Now, these people uh, who, to whom he's writing have not moved from a kind of irreligious lifestyle to a religious lifestyle. Uh, no, they, they, they've actually been radically changed. And outside of Christ, men and women actually set forward the agenda of the evil one either willfully or even unwittingly. But nevertheless, uh, this is the the great clarity of Scripture. And if we uh, step back from it, then we have difficulty in understanding really what's going on. Who is this person and what is his identity? Well, the word uh, for him is antidikos, an enemy. Uh, Describes somebody who is an opponent in a lawsuit. So if the Holy Spirit is the counsel for the defense, an advocate with the Father, then the devil is the prosecuting counsel. He is the one who comes. In Revelation 12, John tells us that he is the accuser of our brothers who accuses them before our God day and night. And one of the uh, ways in which this becomes apparent to us, just in our personal lives, is the way in which we find ourselves sometimes in the most uh, uh, unlikely context having the most devilish thoughts. Have you ever been singing and all of a sudden you had a thought that just was like, where did this come from? <laughs> Who put this in here? Well, I don't want to caricature the thing, but he kind of slipped it in the back of my head and then he came and knocked on the front of my head and said, how can you be thinking a thought like that when you're singing that great hymn? And so we have to understand what we're dealing with. He's a diabolical character. He is malicious in his accusations. He's false in his charges. He is diabolos, the diabolical one. The name actually means slanderer. He slanders God to men. He says, you can't trust God. You shouldn't believe God. Go to Genesis Genesis 1, 2, and 3, and you have it from the very beginning. Did God say this to you? Did he say you couldn't do all of this? Well, of course, no, he didn't. He said, I could enjoy all of this. And he wants, for my own enjoyment, to keep me away from this one tree. But the devil came to slander Adam and Eve and to slander God. And he slanders not only God to men, but he slanders men to God and he slanders men to one another. His strategy is straightforward. You will notice that, that he is uh, prowling around, prowling around. Uh, it's, a great, it's a good verb, isn't it? Prowling. There's a prowler in the neighborhood. You remember in Job, when uh, the encounter between God and Satan takes place, uh, he asks of Satan, where have you come from? And he says, from roaming through the earth and going back and forth in it. So you have this amazing picture of a sort of restless search for victims. And only the foolish and the naive or the unbelieving will treat the evil one as if he is a large black Labrador that can be cuddled and you can pat his head and you can handle him. No, you can't. He is a roaring lion. Lions roar. I've noticed that. You will have too. They roar to intimidate their prey. And they roar to keep any rivals in the animal kingdom 
at bay. And the whole picture of him then is a fierce, determined activity. You see, the Westminster Confession of Faith helps us in this, doesn't it? When, it? when it reminds us that in Christ, we are involved in a continual and irreconcilable war. I find that very helpful, very realistic as well. And it sets me free from all this notion of, well, why is it so tough? Somebody asked me yesterday, are you a rugby fan? Well, I'm a rugby fan, but I don't look like a rugby player, do I? No, you've, you've got to be of a certain bulk and capacity, and you're supposed to have muscles and different things like that, which I, I was not at school the day they gave all of that out. But, <laughs> but I know enough about rugby that it's a rough deal. There's none of those mamby-pamby pads like you have in American football. It's just straight, straight business. I say it with the greatest respect. It's, it's just straight at it, straight at it. And you don't have a boy coming home to his mother and saying, they threw me on the ground. <laughs> so what are you talking about? It's rugby, for goodness sake. They're supposed to throw you on the ground. The people come, I don't know why my Christian life. Oh, so oh, oh. you're involved in a war. You're in a war. This is a war zone. Incidentally, notice the enemies, not the culture. We're not in a war with our culture. Forget culture wars. Listen, when the church loses sight of the real enemy, it will then fight other enemies that aren't the right enemies. I think it was D.E. Host who followed Hudson Taylor as the general director of the Overseas Missionary Fellowship, China Inland Mission. And he said, I would not appoint a man or a woman to the mission field unless they had learned to wrestle with the evil one. Because if they have not learned to wrestle with the evil one, they will wrestle with their fellow missionaries. And you think about that in a family. Let's say the family, the sister's having an argument with her brother and somebody's up the stairs and the thing and they close the bedroom door and everything else. And all of a sudden somebody says, there's somebody out in the, there's a burglar out in the yard. Oh, well, we better unite against that character, yes. So all our petty considerations of why we weren't getting along are then vanquished when we identify the true enemy. He devours people. He devours people. He comes to undermine our confidence in the Bible. Did God say? This is one big string to his bow. Never changed. From the garden all the way to today. Read the theological journals. Did God really say this? Did God really mean this? Where does this come from? It comes from the evil one. He wants to undermine our confidence in the scriptures. He wants to silence our confession of his glory. He wants us to find that our faith actually just finally goes away. And there are two extremes in relationship to the evil one. One is, and you meet this, where people are completely preoccupied with him. Uh, Years ago, was it Peretti who had that book? What was it called? Out of the, in the the dark... What was it? This present darkness? And this present darkness and piercing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm sure there was, that was very helpful in part, but it drove me nuts as a pastor because the people are like, oh, well, that's, that's the demon. You know, this is the demon there, there's there. Whoa, there's another one over there. And so you had a complete pre- preoccupation with demonic activity all of the time. People thought it was very spiritual to be able to identify this. So you've got that as, as one polar extreme, and then the other end is that people just ignore him entirely. Said, no, there's nothing to be concerned about. 
And as, as is so often the case, when we allow the scriptures to adjudicate for us, then we can get ourselves where we need to be. He also masquerades as uh, an angel of light, doesn't he? Um, you know, I sound like old, I sound old fashioned now, but uh, I am old fashioned. And, uh, you know, talking to, talking to younger people and they're in San Francisco and, and they say, you yeah, know, it'd be okay for us to go into some of these clubs. I always said to them, isn't it amazing how bright they are on the outside and how devilishly black they are on the inside? Why is it so dark in there? Could it possibly be that men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil? But the people don't go, the evil one doesn't go around wearing a baseball hat, you know. I'm the devil. No. 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 You ever dance with the devil in the pale moonlight? The Joker. The Joker. You think about how, how if you can make people laugh about something that is wrong, you gradually erode the, the convictions. You, take, you can go from Mrs. Doubtfire, three men and a baby, all of those seemingly innocuous little gender-bending ideas, and trace the line right to the present predicament in relationship to human sexuality. He's the joker. It's his identity. What of his destiny? Well, we need to be clear about this, otherwise we'll be overwhelmed. We need to be very, very clear. And uh, you can follow this up. All you need is a concordance. But Revelation 12, uh, Jude chapter 6, Hebrews chapter 2, uh, reminds us that Jesus Christ has come to destroy, destroy him who holds the power of death. And uh, therefore... We are on the victory side. Uh, if you play chess, and I don't play it very well, but I noticed in your faculty room where I was yesterday, I told one of the professors, the only time I was ever in a room like this was when I'd done something really naughty. And, uh, <laughs> and as far as I knew, I hadn't done yesterday, but uh, you never know. But I saw there was a chess set, set up there. And if you play chess, you know, of course, that... Uh, as somebody who's very, very good, can get checkmate in uh, relatively few moves because they can see ahead in the game. And they can say to you, you know what, this game is over. This, is, this game is over. You can play out some more moves if you want, but you can't affect the outcome. And that's what has happened in the triumph of Christ in the cross and in his resurrection and in his ascension. He, he has chained the evil. I used to deliver groceries in Yorkshire. I was scared to death because of some of the dogs that were in there. One in particular. I used to leave the groceries in the, in the street and phone up and tell the lady, go get them yourself. But, <laughs> but it, was it was because of the dog. And then, and then the man who owned the shop took me one day and said, come with me. And, and the, the noise behind the wall was horrendous. And he says, there's nothing to fear as long as you stay on the path. Because the dog was chained to a stake. And he could make as much noise as he wanted. But as long as you stayed on the path, the chain was so short that he couldn't reach you as long as you were on the path. Hey, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly or stands in the way of sinners or sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. You know, there's no point in monkeying around with this stuff. His identity and his destiny are clear. What is our activity to be? Well, we're told right here, there are a number of verbs, aren't there? Uh, be sober-minded. 
be watchful. And number nine, verse nine, resist him. Stay awake, stay alert. Um, if, verse, if verse seven, uh, you know, induced any kind of uh, dreamy uh, carelessness, you know, because verse seven is a kind of shaving mirror verse, isn't it? You know, casting all your cares on him because he cares for you. It's a nice verse. But, you know, you can imagine, it's, it's going to be one of these verses put with a very tranquil scene, you know, with a river and everything, right? It's distinctly unhelpful. I was just in touch with my dentist this morning to ask to inquire how he is, because I knew he'd been diagnosed with melanoma. He told me the melanoma is through my entire body. It's in my liver. It's everywhere. There is, there is no hope for me. I just checked with one of my men who was an elder in my church. They're talking today about removing the life support system from him because there's nothing more that can be done. So when we think about casting our cares upon God, there's not some kind of superficial thing. It's not some kind of anodyne. It's often through a deep sense of pain and suffering and tears and heartaches that we're doing just that. And so we don't want to be seduced into the idea that, you know, the Christian life, uh, shall, I be, shall I be transported to there, you know, on flowery beds of ease? No. I'll tell you why. Because of your adversary, the devil prowling around like a roaring lion. Two incisive imperatives. There they are. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. He's done this earlier in the, ch- in the, in the book. You can look for it yourself. Casting all our anxiety upon God does not absolve us of the duty of personal vigilance. And so the moment that we begin to get lazy, unguarded, slothful, then we are immediately in a danger zone. When I was a boy growing up, the old ministers used to say that the devil finds work for idle hands to do. Some of you will know the name of Alan Redpath. I remember as a boy when Alan Redpath used to be talking about he said, you know, he would say to us as young people, do you have blanket victory? Blanket victory. I thought, well, what is this? Is it like complete overall victory over everything? No, 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 no. He's talking about the blankets on your bed. He said, can you get out of your bed in the morning? Or are you a lazy rascal? That's what he was asking. Are you slothful? In proverbial terms, as a door turns upon its hinges, so turns a lazy man upon his bed. I went past the field of a sluggard, and I noted that it was overgrown with thorns and thistles and complete chaos. Why? Because the person was a lazy man. So lazy, says the Proverbs, that he puts his uh, spoon into his cereal bowl, and he's too lazy even to bring it up to his mouth. You say, well, the laziness, there's nothing wrong with a little bit of laziness. Yes, there is. Yes, there is. You've got to stay awake. You've got to stay alert. You've got to make sure that in that context, you're paying attention. Uh, the story's told of uh, the chaplain on the south coast of England, and he's dealing with some of the sailors. The sailors come to see him from time to time, and they say to him, you know, chaplain, if you were in the real world like the rest of us, you would know that it's just not as easy as you think to be watchful and to be alert and to be doing all the things you're saying. In fact, they said, we are just swept along many times in the current. 
And he said to them, wait a minute, fellas. And they looked out over the bay, and there, there are sailboats going, going across. And he says, look, one boat goes east, and one boat goes west by the selfsame winds that blow. It's the set of the sails and not the gales that determine which way they go. It's the set of the sails. So in one sense, what Peter is saying is, you need to set your sails in such a way that you are alert to the challenges and difficulties that are there. And, you know, it must have cost Peter to write this in the same way as we mentioned in terms of, uh, of humility, even of anxiety. <laughs> I'm going to go walk on the water. Help! <laughs> oh, you're a little anxious, are you, Peter? Whoa. What did Jesus say? Watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. He neither watched nor prayed, and he came down like a ton of bricks. Don't kid yourself. Don't kid yourself. You cannot fool around with these things. The reason that we must be alert, the reason that we must be awake, is so that we can mount our resistance movement, our resistance movement. That's why we read from Ephesians 6. When you read your Bible, you realize that there are a ton of things that we're actually told to run from. You're supposed to run from sexual immorality. Uh, You're supposed to run from idolatry. You're supposed to run away from false doctrine, from a preoccupation and desire for riches. You're supposed to run away, 2 Timothy 2.22, from the evil desires of youth. But we're never ever told to run away from the devil. We're told to resist the devil and to do so in the assurance that God's word will actually take care of things. And that's why Ephesians 6 is a helpful commentary on it, because it gives us the key to victory in the battle, standing firm in the faith, in the faith. Not standing firm in faith, standing firm in the faith with a definite article. What does that mean? It means that we need to have a theological underpinning for how we're dealing with this stuff. So when when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of a guilt within, what do I do? Upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sins. The doctrine of the atonement, right? Our union with Christ. That's the answer. If Satan comes to you and says, have you, have you been reading your Bible the way you should? No, no, but I'm going to do a better job starting on Monday. Are you loving people the way that Jesus said to love? Well, I haven't been doing real good on that either. Well, but, but I'm going to get it sorted out. I'm going, to, I'm going to redress the balance. Is that the way you're going to deal with evil when he comes to accuse you? No, there's only one answer that you can give, and that is Jesus. Jesus is all our righteousness. We set him before the evil one. We say we can say to the evil one, you can go back to hell where you belong, because it's checkmate, you see. I am in Christ. And these things that settle, settle on our hearts and threaten to undo us are addressed by clinging, if you like, to the work of Christ on the cross who has defeated the evil one. In other words, it's our theology which needs to control our practice. The hymn writer in the hymn, Soldiers of Christ, Arise and Put Your Armor On, which is based on Ephesians 6, um, has those, that wonderful couplet, Stand then in his great might with all thy strength endued. 
and take to arm you for the fight, the panoply of God. The great phrase, the panoply of God. All of the provision that has been made, that is ours in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we follow the example of the Lord Jesus. Matthew chapter 4, the tempter came, and Jesus says, it is written. And he came again, and he said, it is written. And he came again, and he said, it is written. In other words, he wielded the sword of the Spirit as the evil one came to accuse. Well, we just have a moment to say a word concerning our solidarity. Resist and firm in your faith, knowing uh, of the solidarity which exists around the world. I read this morning in the Wall Street of the fellow who's defected from North Korea and, um, and the, just a, an interesting article about how it's questionable how long that regime can actually um, stand up. But when we think about it standing up and we think about, for example, the, the plight of our brothers and sisters in North Korea and in other places around the world, uh, we realize that many of them have a far greater understanding of coming face to face with the antagonistic work of the evil one than any of us do. And so it's a strong incentive to do as it says, to take our stand so that uh, we recognize that Jesus said to his followers in the world, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. So uh, we're thankful this morning for the peace that we enjoy in this country. And uh, we uh, look forward to uh, whatever God has for us. I'm not sure it will, always, it will always be this way. But we need to affirm again uh, that we owe a great debt to those who in earlier generations uh, took on uh, this, this great challenge. Uh, you know, your church history folks have told you often of Polycarp, the Bishop of Smyrna, who when brought before the proconsul and commanded to offer incense to Caesar, take the oath, said the proconsul, and I shall release you. Curse Christ. And remember Polycarp's great response. 86 years I have served him, and he never did me any wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? And they tied him to the stake, and they burned him. In 1729, Marie Durand, was imprisoned with a number of Huguenots in the Tower of Constance in southern France near Montpellier. The charge that she and her friends were confronted with was their unwillingness to renounce Protestant worship. At the time, she was only 15 years old. She was offered freedom if she would agree to renounce the faith of the Reformation. She refused all such offers. She remained a captive in the Tower for 38 years, resisting the temptation to despair, to suicide, and to betrayal. In that time, she witnessed the death of her brother. And if you actually go, as I have gone, to that tower room where they were held, there's a stone coping around a hole in the floor. And carved into the stone is one word. Resiste, resiste. I'm going to take my stand. 500 years from the Reformation, here I stand. I can do no other. I've got less in front of me than I've got behind me. Many of you young folks have got a lot more in front of you than you've got behind you. In the goodness of God, it's, it, you know, it's over to you. 
That's why these professors are investing their lives in you. So that you, in your day, will be prepared to do this. Theresa May comes tomorrow, the Prime Minister of Great Britain. A fine lady, a reincarnation of Margaret Thatcher, I would say. <laughs> and it's just, I'm just going to give you a Margaret Thatcher as I, as I finish, because I think it fits. And even if it doesn't, I'm going to do it anyway, so... <laughs> Some of you have read the history books and you will have learned about the Falkland War and how the islands off the coast of Argentina, which are owned by Great Britain, were sort of taken over by Argentina and Maggie didn't like it. That's Margaret Thatcher. She didn't like it. And so she uh, decided that um, uh, she would, from, from, from Britain, she would send the warships and they would go back and take these tiny islands, which they did. But she also got in touch very quickly uh, with, uh, with Ronnie, as she called him. That would be the president, Ronald Reagan. And she asked for permission to, to move uh, uh, British uh, uh, aircraft with the bombing capacity from locations in the United States of America, to which he agreed. And so the first thing that she did was she sent planes in to bomb the landing strip in Port Stanley. But that was our landing strip. So why would you bomb your own landing strip? Answer, to prevent enemy aircraft landing where you don't want them. In terms of wrestling against the evil one, part of the challenge on a very personal level is getting serious about bombing some of the landing strips where the evil one knows that we have a vulnerability, a weakness, a slothfulness, an ease. You know, I know, God knows. So we look to him. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the triumph of Christ in the cross. Lord, we pray that you will save us from the preoccupation with the, the evil one, and yet on the other hand, from just ignoring the reality of his presence and his activity. Help us to help one another as we seek to follow hard after Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.